0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Poti, your host. This week, NSLT begins a four part series on Iran. And when national security lawyers think of Iran, they think of a lot of different legal regimes that have been in place since 1979, when the Shah of Iran was overthrown by followers of the Ayatollah Khomeini, a Shia Muslim cleric who had been exiled and who thereafter implemented Sharia law. Now, how did this country, known as the original home of the Middle East's cognoscente, a place populated by moderate Muslims living in harmony with Zoroastrians, Jews, and Christians, this country of Shiraz wine-loving, often self-described Aryans. How did this Iran retreat behind a hijab for three decades and reform itself as a state sponsor of terror? And how did the Islamic revolution reshape the history of national security laws and our diplomatic and geopolitical relationships? In 2022, just four weeks ago, Iranian women began protesting against Iran's holy police, the very police that were established by the Ayatollah more than four decades ago. We thought very little about the holy police recently until they arrested a young Kurdish woman, Masa Amini, for refusing to wear her headscarf in public during a local protest. Now, once again, Iran rose in our collective consciousness and our consideration of national security laws. Now, my guest tonight is Brian Egan, a partner at Skadden Arps and the former State Department Legal Advisor under President Barack Obama, as well as Legal Advisor to the National Security Council and Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy Counsel to the President at the White House. Previously, he was Assistant General Counsel for Enforcement and Intelligence at the Department of Treasury from 2012 to 2013. Mr. Egan was deputy legal advisor to the national security staff, as well as special assistant to the president and associate counsel to the president from 2011 to 2012. Gosh, that's a lot, Brian. I'm so glad you're
1: here. Hey, thanks so much, Elisa. It's great to be here and uh, to be with you talking about this topic.
0: All right. Well, I have a lot of questions for you because you've obviously had all the right jobs to understand all of this stuff. So you're really the perfect person to ask, but can you? quickly remind our listeners about Iran, the country that came to be ruled, that was once ruled by shahs, and what our history is, just as an overview.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's a fascinating history for those who are not familiar with it. I don't claim to be an expert, but I've had to get to know a little bit about Iran in my own profession. And as you said, the current state of U.S.-Iran relations really goes back to the 1940s and 1950s. Iran, for many generations, actually had a monarchy. In Iran, this monarchy, uh, the leader of the monarchy was a shah. And there have been many shahs over the history of Iran th- throughout the centuries. After World War II, the current shah of Iran, a guy whose name was Mohammad Reza Pavlai, was supported by the U.S. government, in part because he was pro-U.S., pro-West, Early in the 1950s, however, he was put into disfavor in his own country. The popular elected prime minister, yes, Iran has been a democracy for many years as well. The prime minister, a man named Mohammad Mossadegh, was extremely popular, in Iran and he ran and parted a platform of nationalizing, you guessed it, oil. So yes, oil is at the center of this dispute. The oil industry in Iran was dominated at that point by the British, by a company called the Anglo-Iranian oil company, the predecessor to British Petroleum. And Mossadegh said he wanted to nationalize this British company. Very popular move in Iran, not so popular with the Brits or the Americans. That ultimately led to a coup that the U.S. government has acknowledged was orchestrated by our own CIA uh, and by British intelligence in the early 1950s to remove Mr. Mossadegh and to reinstate the Shah. It was the worst kept secret uh, in the world at the time. People knew the Americans were behind this. The Americans uh, pumped millions and billions of dollars into the Iranian economy from the 50s to the 1970s. And no surprise, the Shah and Iran became one of the U.S.'s closest allies in the Middle East throughout that time period. Very important ally from a strategic perspective for the U.S., during the Cold War. Also, no surprise, the uh, erstwhile nationalization of the Iranian oil industry was turned around, with the Brits and the Americans both getting significant shares in the Iranian uh, oil business beginning in the 1950s. This was not a popular move on the streets of Iran. At least that's what the history books say. Uh, one of the most outspoken critics of U.S. policy and the Shah, really from the get-go, was a man named Ayatollah Khomeini a younger man at the time, but he saw this uh, as a hegemonic move by the United States. Some say it was opportunistic on his part. Others say it was really principled, but he used an anti-American voice throughout the decades of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. This culminated in uh, a series of protests, uh, largely organized by students, that led to the Shah being overthrown in 1979. So let's freeze on 1979 for just a moment. At that point in time, Iran and the United States were major trading partners. Iran was one of the largest purchasers of military equipment from the United States under the U.S. Foreign Military Sales Program. So lots of defense goods going from the U.S. to Iran, lots of oil going from Iran to the United States, much of which was owned or controlled or operated by U.S. companies. So major economic relationships. Major people relationships, a huge diaspora of Iranians already uh, existed in the 1970s. And after the revolution, many who were pro-American fled to the United States. So lots of people-to-people relations between the U.S. and Iran as well. So the students overthrow the government. They, as everybody on this call knows, they also overthrew and took over the U.S. embassy They took several dozen embassy staff hostage uh, in what was one of the longest and most, I'd say, shameful moments in U.S. diplomatic history. Uh, The hostage crisis when I was a kid was on the TV every day, day number X, Y, Z in the hostage crisis. What is going on? Some say this was kind of one of the things that led to the downfall of the Carter administration. This was happening towards the end of the Carter administration. The hostage crisis takes over. U.S. public is justifiably outraged, as is the U.S. Congress, as is the U.S. administration. Immediate effect was a complete freeze in relations between the U.S. and Iran, and including a freeze in assets on both sides. Iran froze uh, all of the assets belonging to U.S. industry in Iran. The U.S. froze all assets belonging to the Iranian government in the United States. As you can imagine, there were plenty of assets on either side to be frozen. And actually, the U.S. asset freeze was one of the very first uses of a law that many of your listeners will now be familiar with, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, or IEPA, which allows the president to do a great deal in the United States in response to an economic emergency. So, pursuant to IEPA, President Carter froze all Iranian government assets in the United States. And this led to a stalemate because of the significant size of economic interests on both sides, combined with This political, diplomatic, foreign policy, national security crisis of our own diplomatic personnel being held hostage in their own embassy, our embassy in Tehran. This stalemate was uh, resolved, ultimately, pursuant to an agreement called the Algiers Accords. This was signed right in the beginning of the Reagan administration. Many people saw this was kind of a slap in the face of the Carter administration, which had negotiated the accords, but uh, the Reagan administration stood by them. And this resulted in the release of the hostages from our embassy. It also resulted in a claims process where uh, Iranians with claims against the U.S., which were largely military sales-related claims by the Iranian government, could file claims against the United States. And U.S. Uh, persons with claims against Iran, which were, in, at least in terms of dollars, mostly petroleum claims, could file claims against Iran in a tribunal in The Hague. And that tribunal, believe it or not, continues to operate today, the Iran US Claims Tribunal. It's been going on for almost 50 years. So the Algiers Accord solved that problem. But at least as you intimated, it did not by any means solve all problems between the United States and Iran. And we can talk more about those.
0: So that is an excellent. Summary, I believe that there is some case law that references the Algiers Accords, which we can hyperlink for our listeners in the notes, because it has been referenced in a number of opinions, particularly out of the D.C. circuit, that might be helpful for a a deeper understanding of some of the laws that you've referenced already. But let's talk about what the immediate consequences were of what was perceived as an act of terrorism in the United States. And also perceived as sort of a, a moment, it wasn't so much a moment as a long drawn out situation that resulted in Iran moving from ally to enemy.
1: Yeah, that's right. This was definitely perceived. And I would say it was, in fact, an act of terrorism in Iran. And it really resulted in a, an almost overnight change. Relations had been going downhill The U.S. was seen as the puppeteer of the Shah by the Ayatollah and his followers in Iran. And when the Shah was ousted, it didn't take long for relations to completely flip in the other direction. With the Algiers Accords being entered into effect in 1981, there was actually a period of time. When putting aside the significant assets frozen on both sides, there were not other U.S. sanctions in place on Iran, but that did not last for very long. Beginning in the mid-1980s, the U.S. began using its authorities to at first gradually impose sanctions on Iran. By the 1990s, the U.S. has imposed a full trade embargo on Iran. So all trade between the United States and Iran was prohibited under U.S. law. Unless authorized by the Treasury Department. And the sanctions really took off in the 2010 period and forward, which we can talk about in a moment. Why were these sanctions put in effect? I think first and foremost has been uh, what you've already said Iran's support for terrorist groups in the region, anti American, anti Western, in some cases, anti allied terrorist groups in the Middle East and the Iran region you know, really beginning in the 1980s and uh, continuing to this day. That's probably the number one reason for sanctions on Iran, but it's not the only one. Concern with Iran's weapons of mass destruction program, which hit the headlines, particularly during the Obama administration, when the U.S. and Iran and others were were trying to negotiate uh, an agreement to end Iran's military nuclear program. That's been a concern really uh, since the late 70s, early 80s as well. The irony, some would say, with that concern is that the United States, of course, was one of the biggest benefactors to Iran in its civilian nuclear program in the 50s and 60s. So a lot of the old Iranian nuclear technologies is old American civilian nuclear technology that we shared with Iran uh, under programs in place at that time period. Human rights uh, is another huge area of concern that the U.S. government has focused on. And the democratic aspirations of Iranians under the current leadership their ability or lack of ability to protest, to speak up, to have access to information from outside Iran uh, has been another area of concern and foreign policy focus for the US government and the subject of sanctions. Cybersecurity problems, support for Venezuela, the list really goes on. There are many reasons why the US has imposed sanctions, but those are kind of the highlights. I would say that what do these sanctions look like? Well, there are traditional OFAC-style sanctions, which we can talk a little bit more about. There are also uh, sanctions in other areas of law, too, Uh, Elisa, some of which you know very well.
0: Let's parse this just a little bit for neophytes. The entity that really does the financial sanctions is the Treasury Office of Foreign Asset Controls. So why don't you talk a little bit about the authority of that office, what it derives from? And then I would ask you to, as a second part of that, part two, talk about where these lists are contained, you know, explain to our listeners why it is you look at these lists and there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of names on these list of banned entities. And then underneath, there's some guidance on what exceptions might apply. So let's just start with that. And then uh, we can move on to the other government agency that gets involved in sanctions.
1: So, yes, the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, is, I would say, the primary implementer of economic sanctions within the U.S. government. And OFAC derives its authorities from both presidential executive orders uh, that are issued pursuant to the president's emergency powers under this law called AIPA, and also from statute, where the U.S. Congress at this point has literally passed maybe a dozen statutes give or take, that either authorize or in some cases require uh, the executive branch to impose additional sanctions on Iran. So almost all of these authorities are delegated to OFAC to implement. And this mix of many authorities over many decades used in many different formats has created what is far and away the most complicated sanctions program, uh, I'd say, that the U.S. has ever tried to implement There are just many different nooks and crannies in this program that uh, starts with an embargo, which is clear enough. If you're a U.S. company, a U.S. person, you can't trade with Iran essentially in in any way uh, unless you are authorized by OFAC. Okay, straightforward enough. Second big prong is a blocking program, which is if you are the government of Iran or if you're one of the entities that the U.S. has added to OFAC's list of blocked parties which is called the specially designated nationals or SDN list then all of your assets within US jurisdiction are frozen or blocked which means you know your bank accounts you can't have access to them they're not stolen or or taken by the US government but they're frozen and any transactions with you are prohibited unless again authorized by treasury so when you look at the SDN list maintained by OFAC you will find uh, as you said Elisa probably hundreds of entities, some government entities, some private entities, individuals, government officials, all of whom have had their assets blocked by the U.S. government pursuant to sanctions. Third big prong is what some refer to as secondary sanctions. And this is one of the more controversial components of U.S. sanctions in general and U.S. sanctions on Iran in particular. Secondary sanctions are where the U.S. government uses sanctions as a tool to try to influence companies and other actors outside of Iran and outside of the United States to comply with U.S. sanctions policy. So if you're a British or a French or an Australian or a South American, uh, South African company, you do business with Iran, let's just say hypothetically. You have no connection to the United States. You have no assets here, no dollar transactions, no U.S. employees. You're completely U.S. free, but you do business with Iran. The U.S. government uses secondary sanctions to say, well, fine, You know, we don't have primary jurisdiction over you. You're not subject to our laws. You're not subject to our embargo because you're not a U.S. company. But if you continue doing business with Iran in ways we don't like, we will add you to one of these sanctions lists and it will make it impossible for you to do business in the United States if you chose to do so down the road. And so this threat of adding third country parties to U.S. sanctions lists under secondary sanctions has become a really big part of the sanctions implemented by OFAC over the last, I'd say, 12 years in particular. Uh, And this began with a series of statutes that Congress passed essentially requiring OFAC uh, to take a stronger hand uh, in this area. The the most famous statute is one called SESADA that was passed in 2010, but there have been several since then. So that's the the third big component, Elisa, is uh, secondary sanctions. When you take these things together, trade embargo, blocking of assets in the United States of many Iranian persons, companies, government agencies, supporters, and then secondary sanctions, the threat of uh, U.S. action against third-country companies, third-country parties, you really have an elaborate set of sanctions that's really designed to cut off Iran from almost all commercial activity that could uh, help it derive revenue and, and grow its economy.
0: Okay, that again, that's a terrific summary. And just to take a minute to sort of put some of the sanctioned entities into some categories, and in all instances, we're talking about Iran, but as I look at this list, you're talking about individuals and corporations. We're also talking about government officials and That's entities, right. including things like IRGC, Cuds Force, and individuals associated with those entities. And then Iranian state-run companies seems to me to be the third sort of government-owned, a hybrid of the other two, so to speak. Is, is that about right? Is it those three, sort of generally three categories?
1: Yeah, those are probably the three main categories, Uh, individuals, government agencies, and then state-owned or state-affiliated businesses in some way, many of which are owned or controlled by the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, which is the military security forces uh, in Iran who actually also control a, a large part of the Iranian economy.
0: And just by way of reminding our listeners, if they need a recent news data point, you might remember that Soleimani, who was one of the generals of the IRGC and a very high ranking um, person in Iranian external operations and intelligence, was killed about two to three years ago now. And there was a very strong reaction from Iran because he was sort of seen as, I guess, the grandfather of their external intelligence operations and very possibly, if you believe public reporting, the individual who also um, suggested and helped to set up Hezbollah in Lebanon. So let's move on though, because we've hit on a few things here, which has to do with terrorism. And I feel like this brings us to the State Department, which has its own list. How is that list different? And if you could also explain if there are different processes for getting on this list or getting individuals or entities on this list between the Treasury and the Department of State.
1: Right, yeah. And I was at both State and Treasury, so I saw these processes on both sides of the street. It's not always a pretty process, uh, you'd be shocked to hear as a government official. And there are some differences. So, State does maintain a couple of lists that are of relevance to Iran. One is the list of foreign terrorist organizations or FTOs. This is a list that a uh, state is required to maintain by statute. It's a list of terrorist groups themselves. And the implications of being uh, added to the, uh, the FTO list are not sanctions directly, although the U.S. government has now made sanctions part of the FTO framework, basically. But uh, it also uh, triggers potential criminal prohibitions under a law called the Criminal Material Support for Terrorists and Terrorism Statute, where U.S. persons can be prosecuted for providing material support to any of the groups on the State Department's FTO list. State also maintains a similar list under um, another authority, Executive Order 13224, which allows the imposition of economic sanctions on these same terrorist groups. State also maintains a list of weapons proliferators uh, under IEPA, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, uh, that has a number of Iranian actors on it as well. So what does it take to get on one of the State Department's lists? And how does this compare to the Treasury process? Well, I think at this point, the, the two processes are more similar than they were you know, when I was first involved in this 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, Both agencies create evidentiary packages of of information. Some of it will be public source material. Some of it will be law enforcement information. Some will be, a lot of it uh, in these uh, authorities will be classified information. Could be diplomatic information. It could be intelligence information. It could be information from allies. The packages are put together basically uh, identifying acts of, in in this case or these cases, acts of terrorism by the entities involved that justify their inclusion uh, on the State Department's FTO list and other terrorism lists. There is a process by which groups can actually challenge uh, these designations. And under the FTO authority, the State Department actually has to renew Uh, designations uh, periodically by reviewing the record, refreshing the record, making sure that the designation is still justified. And there's actually been litigation um, in the D.C. Circuit and D.C. federal district courts over the years by groups who have uh, challenged FTO designations. The Treasury Department is very much involved in reviewing the evidence that is compiled by the State Department. The Justice Department is also involved. uh, The Justice Department, uh, as the defender of uh, designations, when a group uh, sues and challenges a designation in federal court, so that the DOJ, uh, typically the federal programs branch, sometimes the National Security Division, will, will be involved and have a say in how and if a designation should move forward. Similar process on the Treasury side, I'd say at this point, where OFAC, when it adds a party to its SDN list, will compile a pack of evidence from the same types of sources, and they will consult with the State Department and they will consult with the Justice Department and make sure that all, all of the agencies believe that there is a reasonable basis uh, for the inclusion of the relevant party on the sanctions list. So there is an administrative process behind these lists. People uh, can and do seek to challenge designations under different theories. On the OFAC side, it starts at the agency. Uh, It can end in federal court. It it frequently does. Uh, I wouldn't say that on the OFAC side that parties who have been designated have a large track record of success. I think in almost every case, the U.S. government has prevailed completely and convincingly, Um, although there have been some circumstances where courts have at least nibbled around the edges of some of OFAC's actions that I think have made the agency more careful uh, over the years.
0: Okay, well, that's a terrific overview. Are there any other sort of national security laws that you think were sort of spawned or maybe grew in importance after the incident back in 1979, 1980?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I do think that IEPA really uh, was a highlight uh, from that time period. I also think that the focus on terrorism and support for terrorism that really began in that time period uh, and which led to the creation of uh, some of the lists that we've just talked about, the FTO list, the other State Department terrorism sanctions lists, and then after 9-11, similar lists at the United Nations Security Council. I think these these do date back to um, our relations with Iran in large part. Another piece of the puzzle that's been in place for some time now, but is part of the kind of counterterrorism regulatory apparatus is the Patriot Act, which led to you know m- many things happening. But in the world in which I live, uh, it led to an increased emphasis on anti-money laundering regulation through financial institutions as a mechanism for countering terrorism and support for terrorism. So it uh, resulted in banks having to do more to identify potentially suspicious activities related to terrorism, to share information with each other in some circumstances about uh, potentially suspicious transactions, and led to the U.S. government bulking up its own authorities to review information from financial institutions that could be suspicious and related to support for terrorism. Um, So that law is a little bit newer. It doesn't date from the 70s. It dates from the 9-11 era. Um, but it's, it's you know, a core part of the counterterrorism legal apparatus in place right now, too.
0: Thank you very much for that. But I want to come back to this woman, Ms. Amini, uh, in these recent events. One of the things that's happening is that we are not covering this because of the midterms to the degree that um, British, French and German press outlets are And they continue to emphasize it on a daily basis and one of the ways in which they're characterizing the recent round of protests is unthinkable in terms of the scope that it is just shocking that this would be happening in a country that has such strict totalitarian rule and so i would just ask you to sort of think forward for a minute about what you think uh, all of this might do in terms of its impact on our national security laws moving forward.
1: It's, it's uh, Iran is fascinating to me just as a, as a society, one which I've never been to. I hope someday uh, circumstances will change where I can go to Iran. A very educated population, uh, including an educated longtime uh, female population, a democratic society in many ways, where, you know, the Iranian parliament sounds about as rambunctious as the U.S. and U.K. parliaments in some ways. Um, so this is not kind of juxtaposed. All of this uh, or on top of all this is this repressive totalitarian religious regime that just seems at odds with what a lot of, Amer- you know, Iranian Americans uh, talk about when they talk about their home. And I think that this example, a woman who has led to what sounds by all events to be a massive series of protests in Iran, you know, it's kind of interesting to see how it plays out in Iran and also how it plays out under some of the authorities we've just talked about. So, for example, OFAC and the State Department, the Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, had an announcement. She met with U.S. tech companies a few weeks ago, and she said, we want to make it clear to U.S. tech companies that we, the State Department and OFAC support U.S. companies providing internet communication services to Iran, to people in Iran, even to companies in Iran in some circumstances, under the theory that this is a mechanism for Iran to have access to the rest of the world and for the rest of the world, frankly, to have access to what's going on in Iran. Um, And so, you know, I'm in private practice now. We have clients Who are kind of spooked by U.S. sanctions and say, no, no, thank you. We're not going to, you know, even though it might be a good thing to do or the right thing to do, we're not going to mess around with OFAC and the Justice Department and the possibility of sanctions problems by uh, providing our products and services to Iran. So the U.S. government is trying to show, no, we want you to do that. We are going to be forward-leaning. We are going to issue licenses if we need to. We'll provide guidance if we need to. A remarkable statement made by both uh, Deputy Secretary Sherman and then comments made by the Director of OFAC, Andrea Gaki uh, a few weeks ago in this area. The other thing I'd mention is just on the issue of authorizations. The U.S. government is often criticized, and I think in many cases uh, appropriately criticized, for not doing enough to uh, show that its sanctions are not designed to have a humanitarian impact. Over time, the U.S. government has uh, put in place general authorizations, in some cases, that allow humanitarian trade and humanitarian activity between the United States and Iran to respond to natural you know, uh, crises on the ground in Iran and other things. This is another, I think, uh, an inflection point where we, we could see the U.S. government doing a lot more to make the exceptions to sanctions more clear to Americans, to Iranians, to U.S. companies to encourage at least some amount of additional flow of information and technology between the U.S. and Iran.
0: On a theory that they will embrace democracy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's, <At some> <laughs> that is a theory. Yeah, right. This is all going London to help hope. and go in the right direction. That's right. <laughs> so
0: I have a couple of very last thoughts for you today. First of all, it is Diwali as we're recording and the United Kingdom has today its first Hindu South Asian prime minister.
1: Amazing. So yeah,
0: it's amazing. It's a, it's really a bigger moment than I think any of us quite realize right now. Uh, The second thing I'd like to mention is that one of the world's largest Iranian diasporas is in Los Angeles. As you probably know, whereas my understanding, they settled because the weather was so very much like Tehran. (laughs) Uh, And the third thing I will share with you is my father always told me the best pizza he ever had in his life was in Tehran.
1: Holy Uh, cow.
0: Holy cow. And he just loved the Iranian people. He thought they were fun to be around. So cross fingers. uh, It would be nice to see them have the freedoms that they deserve.
1: Uh, Amen to all that, Alicia. All
0: right. I'm always glad that you came in to talk to me. And I know that uh, you don't have a lot of time. So I'm grateful to you, Brian. I hope you'll do this again. We'll try not to wear you out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's my pleasure. Great to be here anytime.
0: All right, our guest tonight has been Brian Egan, a partner at Skadden Arps and a former legal leader in the Treasury and State Departments and the National Security Council. Thank you for tuning in to NSLT. Be sure to share this episode with a friend. Discuss among yourselves where you think the laws might change in reaction to the growing situation in Iran. The National Security Law Conference, remember, is just around the corner in November, and you can find a link to register in our notes and on our website. Remember to send us comments and feedback. You can do so through Twitter at aba_natsec, or you can send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.com. Org. Our producer and writer is me, Alisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with all the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for listening.
1: The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates, or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.